You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome everyone to a special edition for International Women's Day, a conversation around how AI uh, is impacting gender bias. We'll look today both at the challenges and opportunities around this. Uh, my name is Ioana Nikulcha, lead our FinTech practice as part of the Business Advisory Services team within City, advising our investment manager clients around all things technology innovation. So AI is, is near and dear to my heart. I'm delighted to be here today with two panelists who I think will have really insightful and complementary perspectives to share with us all. First, uh, Anu Madgafkar, a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute based out of Mumbai, and Munir Abano, our second guest, who's a senior lecturer at Deakin University based in Australia. Delighted to uh, to have uh, our, our two guests today and discuss with you how you know advancements in artificial intelligence and technology innovation more broadly are impacting us across industries. They're impacting the workforce and the roles of women in particular. Uh, we'll look at some things that we, we may need to be careful around, but then we'll also discuss the opportunities. And finally, we'll conclude with some recommendations and actionable takeaways for executives across industries as we all seek to make these things better. Before we start the conversation, I think it's just important for us to, to take a quick step back and just really think about, spend a moment assessing just the amount of change that has taken place with regard to AI and how the pace of that change is accelerating over the past few years. And actually, many people argue that in light of the current COVID circumstances, we'll, we'll see a further acceleration as people move towards further digitization. It's, it's really incredible. I, I spent the past eight years in financial services, and it all started with data. Datification of the industry was sort of the point of origin. And we, we hear often that over 90% of the data that we have today was created over the past two years. You, you hear things like every minute there's over 1 million Facebook logins and 4.5 million YouTube videos being streamed or 17,000 different Uber rides. So there's a lot of data and only 1% of that is being analyzed, is set today. So AI is really the, the way that we can actually make sense of all of that, process all of this information, analyze it and transform it into its actionable insights. AI is becoming more powerful. I think people are familiar by now with uh, Google DeepMind, which famously defeated the famous Go player in, in Go, at least at all. But, you know, that, that's already becoming obsolete. Uh, we see Facebook Pluribus robot um, essentially um, beating key professional poker players in a six-player tournament uh, in, in Texas Hold'em Poker. AI is, is becoming uh, more powerful uh, and more important. So having taken that step back and thinking about just the amount of change that we're seeing, I'm going to move on to our panelists and actually ask them about how do they see AI actually impacting the workforce and how do they see AI impacting the role of women in particular? Because that's ultimately what uh, what we're here to talk about today. 
So maybe if I jump in, uh, I'm Anu Madgavkar from McKinsey Global Institute. And Yana, I think you framed the opening question very well, because it's certainly true that AI and related technologies uh, like automation will actually have a very profound effect on the world of work going forward. And women are going to be amongst the most impacted groups who are going to have to learn how to deal with and adjust and adapt and learn how to use many of these technologies. So even prior to the pandemic, when we had looked at the impact of AI and automation on the world of work for women, what we found is that across the countries we studied, up to about 160 million women would actually need to make occupational transitions because uh, the nature of work they were doing in their current occupations would change. Machines would actually do that work. And uh, in order to stay employed, women would actually need to find new kinds of jobs to do. But it's not just the transitions. It's also the fact that a very large number of women are going to need to learn to work with technology. So their current jobs are going to involve much more interface with applications that use AI, whether you're a nurse in a hospital that's using AI to support uh, diagnosis or treatment of patients, or whether you're a personal financial advisor in a bank who's using AI to do some level of analysis, women are going to know, need to know how to do that and build those kinds of skill sets as well. And as you said, COVID-19 actually accelerates and exacerbates this to a great extent. Uh, by our estimates, again, the number of occupational transitions women will have to make might grow, grow by 25% or more going forward, uh, simply because COVID-19 has been more disruptive and the adoption of AI and automation is likely to rise even further going forward. So it's not something we can ignore. And we absolutely have to understand both the potential as well as some of the pitfalls of how AI technologies actually impact women in the workforce. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's important to emphasize that this also comes at a time when corporations across industries are becoming much more attuned to the diversity and inclusion agenda. And this is also elevating from a much more administrative sort of check the box exercise to something that's becoming uh, a very strategic decision for the company, a board level agenda item, if you will. So when you put together those big structural impacts that you mentioned on, on the workforce, the, the need to uh, make very significant occupational transitions and to learn to work together with the AI in essentially a new analytic framework, and, and you put that alongside that, that new agenda uh, item that's very important for industries sort of all around, I, I think we, we definitely need to, to talk about these issues. And I know, Munira, you looked extensively around, you know, what are our sources of bias with regard to AI and, and gender? What have you seen there that, that would be important to highlight as to where things can go wrong? Thank you, Iona. So to the listener here, I'm Dr. Munira. So my understanding of the biases in AI is to make people think of them as an imitation of human brain. It's as simple if you want to look at it that way, and it's as complicated in other terms as well. So put it on abstraction, there are two ways how I would uh, put it in simple terms for people to understand how biases can make their way into the algorithms. The first is, of course, we already mentioned about the data. 
just like human child born with nothing, no knowledge, existing knowledge of any phenomena, how they understand the reality by observing, by learning. This is how the algorithms, they learn from the data. So whatever data is provided to them, how they are trained, any biases that they will pick up, any pattern they will pick up. The only thing is that how much intelligence is there in the algorithm to rectify those biases. If not, then, of course, they will repeat those patterns, magnify them with the computational powers. Uh, we have seen examples of many algorithms that learn from the data and then they exhibit those patterns in their output. If there is sexism that is within the data embedded there, and they will pick up that pattern and exhibit the same sexist behavior uh, in their output. The second one is about uh, rule-based, who is designing these algorithms, what rule they apply to them. And unfortunately, the workforce in AI is male-dominant. Only 20% of the employees in the technical roles in major machine learning companies are women, according to the UNESCO report. 12% of the artificial intelligent researchers globally are women, and 6% of the professional software development in the field of artificial intelligence are women. So predominantly, when you have a male workforce working on these algorithms, defining the rules, they Maybe not intentionally, but it's a human nature. Uh, even if the women, they, you will have a dominant workforce of women designing something. They are tend to be designing in a way that would suit them. What is unconsciously you are taking your biases into the algorithms. You are creating those rules. As human beings, we are not free of biases. We all have these with us. Uh, we are who we are, the, our background, what we have learned. And when we are creating the softwares, they, there is a possibility that we will be transferring them. It's the fact that if the, this algorithm is creating a discriminatory result against a particular class of society based on gender or race or ethnicity or economic factors, that's where we need to be careful that how these biases are impacting the decisions that these AI are, are making. Unless we have these super intelligent algorithms that will learn to rectify these biases on their own. Till then, as software developers, as the companies or the governments, we have a responsibility to make sure that these biases are not creating the discriminatory behavior towards women or people of different races. And I think Munira raises a very important aspect or question uh, as we think about this, which is uh, what do we really mean when we say something is discriminatory or what do we mean when we say something is fair? I think a lot of the research and thinking around uh, bias in AI is trying to, you know, also tee up that to say, how do you really define fairness? And, and just to give you an example, it was quite a seminal study that was done in the context actually of racial inequality and discrimination with very profound implications, because one of the big application areas for AI in the US, for instance, is actually in the criminal justice system, where AI platforms and algorithms are used by judges or probation officers or parole officers to do risk scoring for criminal defendants and try and predict the likelihood that you know this particular person will actually reoffend right so risk of reoffense is actually guiding real decisions by judges and probation officers an investigation into accuracy of one of these platforms actually revealed that african american defendants were twice as likely to be incorrectly characterized as high risk for violent reoffense. So the, uh, you know, the false positive rate 
was actually twice as much as for white uh, defendants. And the reason I bring this example is because the notion of what is fairness is kind of summarized here, because in defense of the algorithm, it's a true positive rate. So its ability to predict correctly was actually on par across African-American and white. It was actually pretty accurate and did not bias on the true side. But when you looked at it on the false positive side, there was indeed a bias. So it raises the question about what, you know, as you think about AI and its applications, what are you really trying to optimize for? And the other question is, is fairness, you know, something that is close to what human decisions would have been made in the absence of AI? Probably not. We are seeking to improve and in a way de-bias human decision-making by the use of AI. So we should not mimic exactly what you know human decision track records have been in the past. And at the same time, should fairness be uh, held against the bar of, well, what's the objective uh, you know, data out there? So for example, uh, a lot of facial recognition AI softwares will basically, and image recognition technologies, will basically throw up, if you search for a particular occupation, it will throw up, say, you know, hundreds of images that match that occupation. So one study looked at, for different occupational keywords, what's the mix of genders that are thrown up by common search engines in terms of the images? And what they found was that for highly gendered occupations like nursing, for example, where maybe 80% plus workers are women, the images thrown up also sort of mimic that mix quite well. But for an occupation like CEO, you know, only uh, about 10 or 11% of the images were female images. Whereas in reality, the data in the US at that time actually had 27% of CEOs as women. So there's something about what the data around us, not just that we may provide, but the data that's popularly built and used and reused and propagated, that data itself doesn't really reflect the data of the real world. And therefore, you know, some of these biases get further amplified and further feed into each other because it's these very images that are, again, reinforcing people's perceptions of what the reality is. I would like to concur with the point Anu made here is that using historical records to train AI without uh, being cautious about uh, these biases is like repeating the history, but this time with more powerful tools. I think it's really interesting because there's there's sort of two things that come to mind based on what what both of you are saying, Anu and Munira. One is that it essentially seems that we need to learn how to work with AI, including to debias its decisions. And I think, and, and two, relatedly, where we're seeing a lot of time and, and resources being invested at the moment is in developing explainable AI, because to a large extent, AI has been considered somewhat of a black box so far. And at least from the financial services industry, that, that's been problematic for a number of reasons, which include, you know, explaining decisions to um, that the AI makes uh, to regulators or understanding um, and, and that actually could have implications for, for gender bias that are quite significant in terms of things like credit approval for different demographic groups, but also in terms of being able to explain how a certain AI-based product works to your customers. So we're seeing a lot of uh, research into these kinds of technologies. And I can only imagine that transitioning the AI to be more of a glass box, if you will, and not of a black box will help 
with, with a lot of the things that you described around understanding what kind of data sets have been used to train the AI, what kind of uh, rules have been instituted by the AI engineers and the data scientists. So I'm hopeful that that will make progress there. I wanted to see if there's any more um, uh, real life examples that, that you had, because I know, you know, that that always helps make the discussion much more tangible. And particularly as, as we seek to understand um, what kinds of things we would eventually be able to, to implement to make positive change. So I would like to go first to present a few of the examples that I usually do when I'm trying to make people understand what it looks like for AI algorithms to exhibit a gen- sexist or gendered bias behavior. And a very classic example is the Google Translate. For example, I come from a Persian and Pashtun descent, so our language is gender neutral. So when uh, in Google Translate, if you put some statements that has a gendered associated with them, like she's president, he's cooking. Two very simple sentences. You translate them into a gender neutral language like uh, Farsi or um, let's say Turkish. This becomes like this person is president and this person is cooking. And then you ask the Google Translate algorithm to translate them back and provide a gender for both of them. So it will always put he's president and she's cooking, even though initially it was the other way around. It won't pick pick he for both. It won't pick she for both. So it's because the statistical probability of uh, based on the training set data is that it's most probably he who is going to be the president. It's always going to be she who is going to be cooking. They tried to address this issue by, you know, providing both translations, which is not uh, solving the problem of the data bias. The, The data bias is still there. It's just that they just put a lid on top of it. Uh, but this this example shows that what happens, this is a very, I would say, small scale. It's not a very big problem. But uh, then uh, think about uh, there are some other examples where there could be more of serious problems as well. In medical science, the medicines, uh, the data sets that are being tested on men dominantly, and then the pattern of how they are recommended for all patients, regardless of their gender, sometimes they don't work for women. And there has been a really great book by Invisible Woman by Caroline, who talked about impacts these uh, data gaps creates when an ordinary day life, it's about even it's the car safety system that's being tested only on men, or if even the driverless cars, how they are going to be uh, addressing the issues of sexism and racism. There are plenty of examples in real life where these algorithms, if not properly or cautiously, we address these issues, they can have far more fatal, I would say, consequences as well. Another very classic example within the field of machine learning was this image. uh, I don't know if people would have seen those who work in the field of Lena. Uh, who was uh, in 70s, uh, the picture was taken by from a playbook, uh, Playboy uh, magazine. And uh, it was used widely throughout uh, the machine learning community because they were all dominantly men to test the machine image processing algorithms. And even only recently, last few years, there has been a push to remove that image because this is something that's reinforcing the gender bias within the community. How do you portray the whole image? The, that's one of the reasons that the voice assistant systems, whether they are from 
Amazon Alexa or Cortana or Siri, by default, they all have female voices. And this also gives the psychological impact of someone who is submissive, who has to follow the orders, who, and when there is failure of software or hardware, a female voice is the face of that failure that uh, people would you know, uh, talk about. And so this is kind of reinforcing within the tech industry how you want to portray the image of women, whether it's designing the algorithms, whether it's using the voices, using the images. And use of images already has been exhibited in one example where artificial intelligent algorithm was asked to do a beauty contest and it did not pick any women of darker skin. Considering that looking at the pattern of data in the past, the beauty standard was very predominantly skewed towards white and blonde women. So it's all coming down to the data and the rules. And those are coming from humans. I mean, these softwares are not just springing out themselves. We as humans have the responsibility that how we design them, how we provide this ethical framework, just like Anu said, the fairness. Uh, how do we define this fairness? Uh, what do we have this ethical framework around it? These recommendations different cultures, different countries will have a different definition of what they think of something as fair or ethical. And that's where I think the real problem is. These technologies, AI algorithms, they are tools in the end. But who designed these tools and how do we use these tools? That's what actually matters. And it really matters because of the sheer power of AI as well, right? Just in terms of the processing and computational capacity. Uh, this is a real challenge uh, for uh, when you think about many aspects of the workforce. So all these decisions have real economic implications and outcomes uh, because with the explosion of, uh, you know, both people as well as, uh, you know, data and profiles, what we're really finding is that for every job vacancy, there are literally, you know, thousands of job applicants or more, right? And just doing that process of filtering down and selection of the right candidate is something that is very hard to do on a non, you know, AI and data enabled way increasingly, right? So we are going to need and we will be using such platforms for many sorts of really important sort of economic decisions like hiring or like, um, you know, interview applications and things like that to get into, let's say, professional schools. So, you know, access to the education and skilling system is going to be AI algorithm intermediated, if you will. And therefore, coming back to this notion of how are the algorithms actually perceiving people, because ultimately these algorithms will use tools that look at combinations of uh, you know, past data, but also images, voice, uh, you know, nonverbal cues. A lot of technologies are being introduced to do these kinds of screening. And one study found actually that, again, we look at a context, the data set, there was images of members of Congress in the US. So very powerful individuals who were senators, you know, each in their own right, whether men or women. And the images were actually run through various uh, AI platforms to see what sorts of labels were annotated to those images, because those labels actually are a way of saying, you know, how is the AI responding to that image? And this is actually what gets fed in then into various kinds of screening software, right? So it was interesting that the female profiles, though all these 
senators and members of Congress were dressed identically in a way that is formal business attire. These were their official photographs, very often with the flag, you know, the national flag behind them in their office. So very similar kinds of images in that sense, similar context. But the female images had three times the level of labels that talked about their physical attributes, the color of their hair, their hairstyle, whether they were smiling or not, for example. And labels such as teen or kid or girl were actually much more for, you know, the female members of Congress, whereas the males had labels like, you know, official uh, or attorney or senior executive, uh, which were kind of more empowering and connoted a higher sort of level of power and social status than many of the labels that were ascribed to women. So uh, if this is how, uh, you know, again, the, it's not the AI's fault, it is just a mirror uh, as to how society is also viewing individuals of you know different gender in this case, but we do need. I love Iona's uh, uh, metaphor of from black box we need to move more and more towards glass box uh, to reveal and make more transparent. You know how these analyses are actually being done and how to interpret. Uh, some of the outcomes and decisions. Uh, and, and that's critical because AI has tremendous potential for good as well, which we absolutely must harness. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. I think that that is critical, Anu, and I'm glad that you are you are taking us in in that direction. I'd love to to get both of your thoughts around, um, you know, how can we actually make use of AI and leverage it to improve the the current um, gender agenda, if you will. And I'll actually start with with one example in in our work that I think what what you brought up earlier, Anu, around using AI for talent sourcing and and talent management and talent development. Um, we've looked at a number of AI screening platforms that are emerging to uh, basically play, um, to have people play neuroscience-based games to assess their cognitive and sometimes personality traits to evaluate whether they're a good match for a certain role. And to, to some extent, uh, or these platforms realize that, that to some extent, these profiles of the top performer in a certain job that they will assess candidates against uh, will actually be based on the profile of the current top performers uh, in the corporations that that are utilizing those platforms. Um, and they've instituted ways to um, essentially uh, put in a gender overlay where they're assessing if, if um, different groups, and, and not just gender, just various demographic characteristics, demographic groups, uh, will have the, the same pass rate for these neuroscience-based games uh, because they, they want to ensure a certain level of um, uh, auditability for the AI uh, and, and, and start implementing mechanisms to, to control the ultimate impact. And you know, we're, we're kind of seeing an increase in, in the use of such platforms and I would argue more importantly in the use of this mindset of how uh, executives actually work with AI. Um, and I know we'll, we'll talk about them more, uh, but we'd just love to, to get your thoughts around examples that you have seen. And maybe I'll start with you, Munira, uh, in terms of AI being a force for good for the kind of change that, that we're starting to make. So the very first advantage, I would say, of having AI is that it has brought 
uh, into like this problem of uh, gender bias in the data. Uh, because of uh, share of huge amount of data, we would not have been able to see the patterns that clearly the way that these AI algorithms have shown to us. So I think this was a good eye opener for a lot of uh, scientific communities that, okay, with the, some of the examples that I just uh, mentioned earlier, those examples showed us that what is happening. So we became more conscious about our own biases uh, as a software developer, as a company or a culture, what, what is it that we are putting inside these tools? Because these tools, if they are making decisions for us, they are impacting society, whether they are in the government, medical, defense, where you are deploying these algorithms, they, there will be repercussions. And you need to make very conscious decision about the rules and the data sets as well. So I think the very first thing was making this bias conscious for us is the advantage that we took from AI. And beside that, I think because I do work with the robots and I teach robotics at uh, Deakin University, and the very first thing always they say that they will take away the jobs for many. So these algorithms, they I don't think they will take away the job. This is an opportunity. And in post-COVID era, I think uh, with a lot of dependence, businesses going online, less movement for foreseeable future, we will have more data that is coming in the virtual space and these algorithms are needed there. Uh, I will mention, I will try to connect with the example that Anu uh, mentioned a while ago with the selection of leader and the perception that it's created around the, the leaders. I think social media platforms, they play a huge role on how people post their opinions and a lot of algorithms because it's a cheap source available to train the algorithms easily for small AI algorithms. And it's, um, there's a lot of, you know, bad opinions when you look at the comment sections or read the Twitter threads. Uh, how do we cater with that kind of data that because in the past, I always say that uh, history was written by the victors. Now it's written by those who have the keyboard and uh, access to the social media platforms. This is the digital history that we will leave behind. And this is what the future algorithms are going to understand the humans and the society. So uh, I would say that this uh, perception about the leadership, how these algorithms are going to look at the women, their role in the society, it all comes from us. And these algorithms making us look into the mirror of what we are doing as a society, I think that's one of the greatest thing that the AI has done, whether it's in social media, whether it's in the algorithms for recruitment, justice system, defense, education sector, anywhere you see there, if there is a behavior that the algorithm is going to exhibit, we as a human will see that behavior more clearly than we would evaluate ourselves for that exact behavior. So to me, that's one of the greatest things that the AI has done to show us a mirror of what we are as a society. And I think in the context of emerging economies in particular, and even Asia, for example, right, it's certainly true, you know, both, both realities are true. true. One, one is that women in, in many emerging economies, women in Asia are actually less represented in many parts of the workforce. Uh, they're less represented in terms of financial inclusion. Uh, and many women, uh, almost, uh, you know, 50% of women in low-income countries actually even lack 
the basic means to identify themselves digitally or or even indeed any form of identification so if you think about the empowerment gap that women have in many uh, emerging countries this is actually quite large uh, but it's equally true that the emerging economies are the ones where we are genuinely seeing leapfrogging in terms of digital and internet access the kinds of data usage uh, very often the kinds of digital infrastructure that are being created or built um you know india's one example which has really committed to both digital id as well as open api stacks to capture or or, or rather than capture i would say to enable and facilitate digital payments so while the empowerment gap is huge for women the potential to also leverage all of this digital infrastructure the flows and the data that go with it to solve some of these basic issues that women face is also huge and one very promising area is actually around credit there's a huge unmet need for credit in the informal segments for most emerging markets um and they don't have established you know credit scores or paperwork to suggest you know they are credit worthy uh but the data around the kinds of transactions they do whether it's uh the mshwarmi model of looking at you know are people paying their mobile phone bills right and what does that data tell you uh or uh, in india around digital payment flows for a small vendor or a small business owner if you actually capture the kinds of payment inflow data then that actually helps through ai you know do a credit scoring that is leveraging really the digital footprint of the person as opposed to a set of formal records and that is incredibly empowering if it's done well uh, but we do need as you said yana the explainability factor to say okay if a credit decision comes out in a certain way how do you understand why this was the case uh, and related to that i think a lot of uh, algorithms and developers are thinking about the so called counterfactual examples which is if this credit decision had to be different then what would you need to believe about the underlying attributes just to help people understand what's really driving a certain ai enabled decision in this in this case a credit related decision but even to help customers or to help auditors and inspectors who you know will need to look at ai and 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 what it's really doing but to help them understand what are the binding constraints how would changing those binding constraints actually change you know the decisions that the algorithm was making uh, much more i think effort needs to be put into understanding things at that level so it's interesting what you're bringing up anu is sort of a mindset shift that needs to happen and i think that's really the way that that we we should sort of bridge into what are some some things that we should do is it this mindset shift is it ai explain investing in ai explainability to help deploy ai as a force for good uh as it relates to to gender and you you both brought up Munira and Anu the the point around utilizing ai to actually make sense of all of this data which we did not have available before the the digital footprint as you called it and and we've seen similar efforts um within corporations to deploy ai to basically provide an organizational mri if you will around uh digital exhaust so email and chat data um, and look um at how uh women and men uh form networks differently within their organization um in terms of breadth in terms of strength in terms of um do they do they go cross functionally do they tend to have enough um kind of senior support and and then actually use these metrics captured by the AI based on digital exhaust 
to understand where there is room for intervention if you want to to help support women to to get promoted and and become seniors. Um, so I think it's it's certainly um, a theme that that's resonating not just uh, in the credit example that you provided, but also in in other areas. And I think it's critical that we're making steps that way. So, um, you know, we'll we'll start with you, Munira, and then uh, Anu would also love to get your thoughts as as to how do we make this actionable, um, and and what should um, should business executives and other different stakeholder groups, maybe it is the data scientists and the data engineers, uh, do to make things better. So, to me, it's a multi-level solution. There is no one fix for all that you would say, because every AI exists for a different specific purpose. It's objective uh, within company, within an organization, or within the countries, if it's from government's uh, initiative, uh, project initiatives. So, first of all, is the individual level. Me as a software engineer or data scientist, when I am sitting and working on something, what are my values and morality that will define what I am doing? Uh, I have to be conscious about not letting my personal biases consciously get in the way of the design. Second would be the company culture. That's the, another level that uh, what ethical framework they have provided for their developers to make sure that it is being followed. So that culture around the company, how they define it, how they put the recommendations there, that what would be fairness. We did discuss about the fact that fairness is also contextual. Different companies will come up with their own definition. So this is a organization level uh, solution. And then comes, I think, the culture overall that belongs to a country. So different uh, aspects around the ethical framework in different countries will be defined differently. So within all of that, this is, this is not a single fix for all this uh, decision that we can make, but everyone on their own level, they are responsible for what they are deploying, what they're creating, and what will be used to make decisions. I can refer back to the recommendations that were given by the UNESCO, very specific to combat the gender bias in applications using artificial intelligence. And they are recommending to the companies and the governments to First of all, end the practice of making these gendered roles for the AI, like voice assistants and other stuff. So by default, you are pushing a gender stereotype within the tech company. Uh, they Just like we want to adopt a gender neutral languages within the society to be more inclusive to the diversity that we represent, uh, the same should come with the tech products as well, which are AI solutions that they need to understand that the psychological impact the products create on people by using female voices, by using female stereotypes, these need to stop immediately. That's the first thing that would remove a lot of psychological stereotyping that the IT is a male-dominated field, AI algorithms project the female stereotypes about their roles in the society. So this is a very simple thing that can be done easily. It's not an issue that needs a bigger debate. So once you start, refuse to accept something, that's not correct. I think that's the first step. And then we move towards a better culture that will be reflected within the country or uh, within the organization. I would agree with uh, what Munira says. And I think for companies, individuals, and all stakeholders, there are probably three buckets of things that are pretty much must-dos, right? They're both sort of mindsets and attitudes, but also practices uh, that, that we can embed into our day-to-day -day life. One bucket is really about 
the spirit of a human engagement, right, with AI. This is not something that AI is doing on the side. Very much the spirit of humans in the loop type of decision making, where AI is a tool that helps show you something, helps suggest something, but it's also very incumbent on a set of human beings to understand, interpret, maybe make decisions and be very actively engaged in that process and not sort of think about it as something divorced from their own role. And associated with that is a set of, you know, fact, encouraging more fact-based conversations to educate people in the company about how all of this works, for example. Um, and, you know, raising, raising just the ability and the awareness of people in the organization around many of these tools. So uh, that I would say is, is one sort of must-do. The second is possibly a set of uh, practices, good practices that we can implement along the whole AI application value chain. So right from when you think about training the AI on a data set, what are some practices to really reveal in a transparent way the quality of the underlying data? We should have a clear set of you know, commonly agreed uh, or, or well-developed metrics around what a good data sheet looks like and what what questions to ask when you're thinking about the quality of the data? Similarly, when you're thinking about the quality of the model, what are the questions you should be asking? At what point should you ask? Should you be implementing rigorously a sort of uh, audit and a, a learning module at the end or, or you know, midpoint and end of any AI rollout to say, okay, what have we really learned from you know, the experience and the outcomes that this particular application has generated. So I think a set of such practices uh, is, is pretty critical. Uh, and then I think finally, there's a very strong foundational thing, Munira touched upon it, but it's, it's embedding, you know, ethics into computer science at the highest level, almost, which might be as simple as, you know, for in, in the education system, as you know, more more people are getting uh, really smart on the technical aspects of AI uh, and data science. Can we also raise their awareness and ability to think about the ethical issues associated with them? Almost make that uh, you know a mandatory and core and valued part of the curriculum, not a check the box or something that's nice to do but doesn't really matter in terms of you know how how this professional is actually being built so i think ai governance overall is is a huge priority for the way companies and uh, indeed all stakeholders are going to have to think about it i i think that's all interesting and i know i know that a number of, of universities are already implementing such courses uh or at least this mindset uh in in their curriculum so i think that's that's really important and i want to to thank you both for, for a fascinating conversation on, on this note of, of actionable recommendations, like what can we start actually doing tomorrow uh, if, if we want to, to improve things. I know this has been um, really insightful, first of all, around uh, the challenges that we are experiencing around AI and, and gender bias. But I think I'll, I'll leave here um, optimistic that we can mostly uh, turn things around and use AI as a force for good. And as we all engage uh, with AI as part of this, this new analytic framework, uh, we've identified a, a set of, I think you, you call them practices, Anu. So it, it's sort of basic hygiene, if you will, in terms of making sure that, that the, um, the data is the way that it should be and that we're appropriately feeding this data to the AI, which, which I think you both identified as a tool at the end of the day in the context of the, the human in the loop framework, but it also necessitates, uh, number one, acknowledging this issue, 
at a sort of organizational and, and policy uh, level, um, and not to mention at an individual level, and then being really open to, to that mindset shift and, and thinking about things, uh, turning things around. So it's, it's been a fascinating conversation for me. I know I'll leave with a lot of illustrations, but also with a lot of insights that we can all act on. So thank you very much for uh, your thoughts. Thank you. It's wonderful to be part of this. Thank you again for having me here. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.